0: There is nothing about us that's worthy in the eyes of God. We're sinners, deserve to be in hell. But when we got saved, Jesus Christ entered into us. That is what makes us valuable. Now there's worth in the eyes of God. Open your Bible, please, to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. My grandfather was born and raised in the city of London, England. And uh, somewhere 1905, I don't know, 1906, somewhere in there, he and his wife, and um, they had a couple children at the time, they moved to Canada. And my dad was born here in Canada in 1911. And so I've been thinking for all my life that uh, it might be nice to get over to London to sort of visit my roots. I would like to, uh, I'd like to visit the Millwall Docks area. That's where my grandfather and his father, my great-grandfather, used to work in the Millwall Docks. And I'd like to visit around there. London is a big city, and I don't know, 10 million people, I don't know, but it's, it's huge, the City of London. But there's a place that they call the Heart of London. They consider that the central point. And it's called Charing Cross. That's considered to be the Heart of London. Now, Charing is the name of that place, the original name. And a monument of a cross was set up there at Charing Cross in 1290 AD by a very heartbroken King Edward I. He set it up as a memorial to his wife Eleanor who had died suddenly and he was heartbroken. And that's how Charing Cross came to be. But from then on, all distances were measured from Charing Cross. You'd go out so many miles and you'd be here, and so many miles you'd be there. And it was at Charing Cross where they would measure. And it became known as the heart of London. The locals refer to it as the cross. Now many years ago, a young boy, a child, became lost in the bustling metropolis of London. And a policeman came to help the boy. He was lost. Where do you live, son? And the policeman asked the, the young boy many questions, but it didn't help. The boy couldn't, couldn't describe where his house was. And finally, the little boy, with tears, said... If you take me to the cross, I think I can find my way home from there. What an incredible description of the Christian life. Our life in Christ, our new life begins at the cross. And every so often, we have to go back to the cross We have to revisit the cross in order to keep our bearings in life correct. We've got to keep our direction, our focus right, and we have to visit the cross. That's what the communion service is about. The communion service brings us face to face with the cross, and we're going to learn about that today. So have your Bibles ready, maybe a pen or pencil, make a few notes. Let's pray first. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the cross of Christ. What an incredible emblem and symbol, symbol it has become down through these last 2,000 years. And we believe in the old rugged cross. Our Father, please prepare our hearts for the, the table of the Lord today. Uh, communion service today. Help our hearts to be ready. Our Father, we do pray that if there be even one here, watching online who has not yet fully understood their need to repent of their sins and to receive Jesus Christ as his or her personal Savior, help them today remove the scales from their eyes, help them to see, and to see really the simplicity of repentance and faith in Christ. Glorify yourself, Father, in Jesus' name we ask it, amen. Well, as you may or may not know, the church at Corinth was a mess. They managed to mess up just about everything. And the communion service was no exception. They messed that up too. And so we begin in chapter 11 and verse 2. Paul wrote, Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them unto you. Um, An ordinance means an order given to us by a superior that's what an ordinance is and the Bible speaks of two ordinances one is communion and what's the other one anyone know baptism communion and baptism are the two ordinances given now we get down to verse 17 and Paul says now in this I declare unto you I praise you not now he's talking about communion they didn't do it right They weren't doing it properly. Um, He says that ye come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Their communion services actually made them worse off than before they came. And so that's not good. I believe that a lot of churches still today have messed up the communion service. They're not doing it right. We need to get back to what God says here in the Scripture. Now, in verse 18, he says, For first of all, when ye come together in the church, ordinances are to be done when the church comes together. They can't be done by a few Christians of the church off to one side. You can't go off to Tim Hortons, have a coffee, a donut, and have a little communion service between you and a couple Christians. It doesn't work that way. Ordinances are to be done when the church comes together. So, he goes on, he says, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. There were heresies or divisions amongst the people at the church of Corinth. Heresies destroy unity. Divisions do not make for a happy church. That's why it's very important that every church not become cliquish so that when you go to church, well, this group only talks to themselves and that group only fellowships among themselves. Cliques have a way of destroying unity. Can you imagine in your family if mom and dad never spoke to the children, only to each other? And, and only the girls in, the, in the, the family spoke to each other and they wouldn't talk to the boys and the boys wouldn't talk to the girls and no one was talking to the parents? You'd say, that's a messed up family. And yet there are churches like that. It's very important that we reach out. Next Sunday, we're going to have a nice to meet you Sunday. You'll get an opportunity to say hello to two or three people that you haven't met yet. Maybe you've seen them in church for many weeks, but you haven't met them. You get a chance to say, hi, what is your name and my name? And, and we'll take a few minutes and do that next Sunday. Very important that we do that because it helps build unity in our little church family, okay? So that's why we do it. So divisions are normally caused by pride and sin, and you cannot have the Lord's Supper if there's sin in the church. You cannot do it if there's, if there's no unity. If there's no love, no unity, no Lord's Supper. So that's important. Now, we come to verse 20. When ye come together, therefore, in one place, that's the whole church gathering together, he says, this is not to eat the Lord's supper. For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. Uh, What, have ye not houses to eat and drink in, or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. Now something to notice, when he says uh, in verse twenty one one is hungry, another is drunk, and it doesn't mean doesn't necessarily mean that that was alcohol. it means that they were filled up with drink, often it was uh, like a grape juice that was the big drink back then, and they were filled right up with that it doesn't mean that they were inebriated, that they were drunk it doesn't mean that but What we find here is that this church at Corinth came together and what they had, they were calling it the Lord's Supper. And Paul was telling them, it's not. This is not the Lord's Supper. You see, verse 20, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. What they had going was not what God wanted them to do. They called it the Lord's Supper, but it wasn't the Lord's Supper. Can you imagine two of our children in the church, maybe six years of age, a little boy, a little girl, and somehow they they get together and they they kiss each other and they say, we're married now. Well, we'd we'd call that cute. But then when we would, you know, take their hands to take them home and they scream, what are you doing? That's my wife. That's my husband. Let me go. We'd say, don't be silly. That's nonsense. Because they're not really married, are they? They may pretend they are, but they're not. In some churches, they put a few drops of water on a baby's head or a child's head or an adult's head and they call that baptism. That's not baptism. The word baptize means to go completely underwater. That's what the word means. That's why we go to great length, time, talent, trouble, expense to build a baptistry behind curtain number one. If all we had to do is put a drop of water on someone's head, no problem, i got a glass right here. But that's not what the Bible says. We have to do it God's way. But it's harder. It's God's way. We do it God's way. Communion has to be done God's way, or it's not communion. Many years ago, a popular TV evangelist, Rex Humbard, He sent out in the mail thousands and thousands of these little bits of wafer and little bit of grape juice in a container, and at a given date, at a certain time, they were all going to have communion together. That's not communion because it's not in the local church. It's spread all over the world. It's not communion. Communion is given to the local church. Church, that's where it's supposed to happen. So here in verses 20 to 22, we learn that the Lord's Supper must be done the proper way or it's not the Lord's Supper. Now, verse 23, Paul says he got this teaching directly from Jesus Christ himself. You see, for I have received of the Lord, that's Jesus, that which also I delivered unto you. So Paul got this teaching directly from Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed. Now, if we took time to read the Gospel accounts, we would find that Judas left to go and betray Jesus. And after Judas left, that's when Jesus gave the communion service. So what does that teach us? Judas was not in the room. Judas did not join and partake in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is not for lost people, for unsaved people. It's not. Parents, you may have some some children, and uh, maybe they're six, seven years of age. I'm just picking a number out of thin air, but they're not saved yet. You happen to know that Jesus is not in their heart. So when you sit down with other Christians in the church for communion, and the trays are passed, And your child, I want one, I want one, I want one, I want one! Just like in the grocery store, you know how kids will sometimes do that at the checkout, the candy bars. Of course, not our kids, of course. But you make a mistake by giving them, like, okay, 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 here's one for you. That is a mistake. Well, what should we do? Very simple, we have a beautiful foyer out there. You get up and you go with your child out to the foyer. That's what you do. But don't give in to a tantrum because you're not doing your child anything good. You're actually hurting, harming the cause. It's not meant for unsaved people, whether they're little or whether they're old. The Lord's table shows Jesus' love for us, His suffering for us, His death for us. And we're going to talk about this a little more in a minute, but I want you to see that what Jesus is giving us is a brand new covenant. In the Old Testament, God gave the covenant of law through Moses. Remember with the Ten Commandments and all that? That was a covenant with the Israeli people, with the Jewish people. And the covenant sign, actually there were sort of two of them. One of them was uh, keeping Saturday Sabbath. That was given to the Jews as a sign of the covenant. And the second one was circumcision. That was another sign, covenant sign. But that was given to the Jews under Moses. Now God comes down in human form. His name is Jesus. And he gives us a new covenant. It's called a testament. And we're going to get into that in just a moment. But um, what we're learning here is that Jesus uh, told to Paul, okay, here's what happened. He took bread. What kind of bread? Was it garlic toast? No, it was a flat bread. During the Jewish feast of Passover, they would have bread with no yeast in it. So there was no rising agent. Sometimes you'll see a church that has these big puffy loaves of bread and they use that for communion that's wrong they're not doing it right it's flat bread no yeast why because god was teaching them a principle the yeast at least during passover time was a representation of sin and evil and the idea was to get the yeast out unleavened bread no yeast in the bread Leaven was sourdough is what it was. They didn't have fleshman's yeast back then. So what they would do is they would take a a piece of bread that had gone sour and they would use that as a rising agent, as a yeast, in their loaves of bread. That's how they would get puffy bread, but not during Passover. And Jesus did this during the Passover. He was the Passover lamb. So they brought in the bread. The bread was flat bread. There was no yeast in it whatsoever. The yeast represented sin, and the sin must be gone. There must be no unconfessed sin in our hearts. Folks, we will not be as perfect as we want to be until we get to heaven. Every day we're going to struggle with sin and temptation to sin. And even on a Sunday morning when we gather in the house of the Lord, maybe we had a fight in the car as we were on our way. Maybe we had some worldly thoughts these things need to be confessed. They need to be put away. We've got to get the leaven. We've got to get the yeast out. No unconfessed sin. The Lord's Supper is part of worship. How can we worship God with sinful hearts? We can't. Verse 24. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. The bread and the juice are memorial only. They are not a sacrament. Some of you grew up in a church where you were told that this is a sacrament. The idea of a sacrament is something that makes holy. And the teaching is if you want to get to heaven, you've got to have the sacraments. Communion or the table of the Lord is not a sacrament. It doesn't make anyone holy. No one can get to heaven by having communion. I mean, if that were the case, if we could get to heaven by having communion, please someone tell me why did Jesus have to die on the cross and shed his blood if all we had to do was eat a little piece of bread, you know, as a sacrament. Now, it's a memorial. This do in remembrance. That's why we emblazon those words on the front of the table down here. This do in remembrance of me. It's a memorial. It is not a sacrament. Very important. Verse 25. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying this cup is the New Testament. There's that new covenant again. The New Testament, in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. The cup represents his blood. I want you to notice it is never called wine. In the Bible, there's two kinds of wine. One is unfermented. The other is fermented. It was just grape juice that was fermented into alcohol and grape juice that wasn't fermented, but it was called wine. And you have to look at the context in order to know the difference. It's never called wine. It's called the fruit of the vine. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus himself called it the fruit of the vine. That's grape juice. It contains no alcohol. Say, Why? Why? Because remember what yeast did to the bread? Well, that's how you get alcohol, is by adding yeast. Um, People who make alcohol, like in wine, that kind of thing, or beer, they have to add yeast in there, and that helps produce alcohol. And so what the yeast was to the bread, the yeast is to the grape juice. You can't have alcoholic beverage at the table of the Lord. Jesus' blood wasn't alcoholic. If we did a breathalyzer on, on Jesus when he was hanging on the cross, we'd find there was zero alcohol. In his system. Even that numbing drink they offered him, he refused it. When he found out what it was, he refused it, wouldn't touch it. His blood is what washes away our sin. There's no alcoholic content there. So this is another important point because in some churches, they pull out the 12% proof, 18% proof wine, glug, 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 here's a drink for you, have a drink here. There's even some crazies um, who talk about getting drunk in the Spirit. And, of course, they try to make this say that, and it doesn't. So, in verse 25, he said, after he had supped, that means the Passover meal was finished, the um, uh, bread was broken, and he calls it the New Testament in his blood. What is a testament? A testament is a will. When someone passes away, they have the reading of the will. Well, that's the testament. And it's done after a person is dead, not before they're dead. When a person is still alive, the testament or the will does not come into effect. Well, Uncle Zeke put me in, in his will and he said that when he dies, then, then I get $10,000. I want that 10000 Uncle Zeke's not dead yet. You don't get anything until Uncle Zeke dies. Well, that's the idea here. Now, in Hebrews chapter 9, it says, For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Jesus called it the New Testament. That's compared to the Old Testament. Now, I know that what we often call the New Testament and the Old Testament is the division between the 39 books of the Old Testament, right, and the 27 books of the New Testament. And we say, well, the New Testament, those are Matthew to Revelation. We call that the New Testament. and That's fine. But technically, we're talking about a covenant that God has made with His people. And the Old Covenant came through Moses. And if you'll remember the story, Moses wasn't allowed to enter into the promised land. He had to die in the Old Testament, in in the uh, wilderness. Jesus died on the cross. There's the death of the testator. God gave the old covenant or testament of law. Now that doesn't mean that that's how they get to heaven. That means that that's how God was dealing with His people. You do this, you do this, you don't do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. That was the Old Covenant, the Old Testament of law. In the New Testament, we're told, in the book of Galatians, we're told that the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Christ now offers a new covenant, a new testament, and it's in His blood that necessitates his death. We are living in a new covenant with God. If we were living in the days of the Old Testament, we would be under that covenant of law. And we'd have to do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. But we still get saved the same way. It's by faith. Abraham was saved by faith. Moses was saved by faith. Everyone in the Old Testament who's ever been saved was saved by faith. Everyone in the New Testament who's ever been saved is saved by faith. But God deals with His people a different way. And He dealt with His people in that Old Testament dispensation with law. You do this, you don't do that. And if you break the law, there's punishments. In the New Testament, we're not under law. We're under grace. Grace means a state of pleasing where God bestows gifts upon us. That's literally what grace is. Every one of us who got saved, we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, living inside us. It makes it so much easier to live for God. They didn't have that in the Old Testament, and they struggled. You know, there wasn't just ten laws, the Ten Commandments. The experts who study all this claim that there were over 600 different laws that affected all areas of your life your diet, your dress code, what you could and could not do, the Sabbath day laws and so on. We're not under that anymore. There are people on the internet who are trying to put you and I back under Old Testament law. That is wrong. We are not under law. We are under grace. In the Old Testament law, you were commanded to go to the temple and do sacrifice. You're under grace. You don't have to come to church. You'll be blessed if you do, but you're not under law. In the Old Testament, you were commanded to give tithes. In the New Testament, you're not under law, you're under grace. You don't have to give anything. But I know that God will bless you if you do give. But you see the difference? When you went through your grade school and high school You know, all these laws, all this stuff you had to do. But then graduation came and you said, I'm free! Well, that's the difference between law and grace. Under grace, we're free. Not free to sin. We're free to do what pleases God. That's the big difference here. Very, very important. In verse 25, Jesus said, it's in my blood Moses' law was based on the blood of bulls and goats. But the bulls and goats, the blood of bulls and goats could only cover sin. Like trash in a trash can, you put a lid on it to cover it until trash day, garbage day, and then the garbage man comes and takes it away. Sin was covered, covered, covered by the blood of bulls and goats until Jesus came and shed his blood and took sin away. What a difference. In Hebrews chapter 10, it said, it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's not possible. Only the blood of Jesus can take away sins. That's it. The wonderful grace of Jesus based upon his shed blood. So, we're living under grace, not law. Now, look at verse 26. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till He come. The Lord's Supper shows that Jesus' blood washed away our sins and we're to keep doing it and keep doing it until Jesus comes and takes us out of the world. That's how long we're to keep doing it. Verse 27. Now watch out because here come the consequences. Wherefore. Now I've explained this was it last Wednesday I explained this the difference between therefore and wherefore. They're two different words. Therefore is referring to a logical conclusion. Wherefore refers to a consequence. Usually the consequence is not very nice. Sometimes the consequence can be nice, but it's a consequence. So, verse 27 Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So here's a consequence. The death of Jesus for sinners is the most important and holy thing that the Lord's Supper is a picture of. And for an unsaved person, that's someone who's unworthy. That's what it means. Whosoever shall eat this bread, uh, drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, they're in a state of being not worthy. There's nothing worthwhile about them. Anything that you have in your home that is no longer worthy, there's no worth to it, out it goes. That's what we do with our trash. You've opened up the the wrapper, you've eaten the candy bar, what are you going to do with the wrapper? There's nothing of worth. Out it goes. Now maybe if you're collecting bottle caps or something, you might find some worth there. But generally out it goes. Unsaved people in the eyes of God have no worth. By the way, neither did we. There is nothing about us that's worthy in the eyes of God. We're sinners, deserve to be in hell. But when we got saved, Jesus Christ entered into us. That is what makes us valuable. Now there's worth in the eyes of God but someone who's unsaved and partakes of the communion, there's a consequence and we need to herald this loud and clear. For someone to partake, according to verse 27, they become guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Do you remember the Roman guards who whipped Jesus and nailed Him to the cross? and then drove a spear in his side, you say, ah, those guys, they, they crucified Jesus. They deserve to go to hell. They are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And yet, that's what God says about an unsaved man, woman, or young person who partakes of communion. Not very good. Not a good sight. There's consequences of partaking unworthily. Now, our time is just about up here, but I do want you to to see something. Um, We're told here, in verse 28, but let a man examine himself. And so, let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Now, you needn't turn there, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 it says examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith You're here today you examine your heart is Jesus living in your heart You may have a wonderful head knowledge of Jesus but is he living in your heart Have you come to Jesus and said Lord If you don't save me, I'm going to end up in hell. I don't deserve to be in heaven because my sin has put this wall up. Lord, I've offended you with my sins, my thoughts, my words. My sin is sending me to hell. Jesus, I don't want to go to hell. I recognize that you are God in the flesh. You died for my sins on Calvary's cross. You were dead, buried. You rose again the third day. You're alive. You're knocking on my heart's door. Lord Jesus, I want to open the door. And as best as I know, I'm going to repent of my sin. I'm opening my heart. Jesus, you come in. Would you come in, please? Jesus is a gentleman. He will not force his way into anyone. But if anyone will genuinely repent and they genuinely want Jesus in, he will come in. He's happy to come in. That's what happened to, I guess, just about everyone here. There was a time in your life where you finally understood I need Jesus Christ. If I die, if I die in my sleep, if I I get hit by a truck, I'm going to be in hell. I need to do something now. I need to repent of my sin. And the best you knew how, you got on your knees maybe and you told the Lord how sorry you were that you were a sinner. And you asked Jesus to forgive your sin and come in your heart and be your Savior. If that's your Condition. If that's your story, Jesus is in your heart. So, verse 28 let a man examine himself, make sure he's saved. And if he's saved, then let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Now, we have to stop there, and I'd like you to bow your head in prayer. We'll have a word of prayer. Thank you for watching the message today.